0: It's a blessing to be able to gather together uh, in this day, especially considering some in the south and some of the U.S. states are not able to gather indoors at all at this time. And so we have the privilege that we can gather together, and I'm certainly thankful for that. Uh, for this morning's meditation, please turn with me to Psalms chapter 62. Psalm 62. Psalm 62 <clears throat> is a psalm of David. He writes, truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, and I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies, and they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. I've read the entire chapter of Psalm 62. We don't specifically know how old David was when he wrote this psalm. It seems from verse 4 that he was already king. He was already in a position of power and authority. And so he had lived enough years in life to understand that uh, there are certain... Truce that became self evident to him as he went from being a shepherd boy, coming into favor with the king Saul, then running for his life for many years, and all of the different kinds of stresses and 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 uh, manipulation that uh, he experienced through that time of fleeing for his life, and then eventually ascending to the throne to have a. Um, have many around him exalt and uh, appreciate his rule. But as he writes this psalm, that he has come to the recognition in verse 1 that as he waits upon God for his salvation, as in he waits expectantly for God to provide salvation because he says in verse 2 he only is my rock and my salvation he is my defense and I shall not be greatly moved last Sunday brother Ben preached on uh, in first Peter the, the the scripture that talks about Christ being our cornerstone another way for us to say that in our modern building codes is he's the foundation now, the foundation doesn't get a lot of attention because it's hidden. It's underground. We see the the, the the exterior of the building, the interior of the building. Most of us don't really think of the foundation at all because it's hidden from view. And yet the scripture, for good reason, says the foundation is absolutely critical and important because it holds the entire building up but the foundation quickly becomes noticeable when something goes wrong some years ago i re- recall reading an article about a new kind of building a new fad maybe it's better better way to describe it they're calling them iceberg houses and of course the children here among us you probably have seen pictures of an iceberg none of most of us have not seen one Physically, but we've seen the picture of what an iceberg looks like. The iceberg that's floating in water, enormous, but only the tip shows above the water. But the bulk of it is under the water itself and hidden from view. And this was the new building fad in certain parts of the world where they would take the same approach. Where what you would see above ground was just the normal house perhaps maybe uh, somewhat fancy. But as these very wealthy people would purchase these houses, especially in the area of London, England, the space to expand was very limited. They couldn't expand sideways because these houses were built many years ago in neighborhoods that were established. And so the only way they could expand was down. And so they built down. They Excavated enormous amounts of earth underneath those houses so they could build subterranean rooms for all kinds of purpose, garages and, 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 and swimming pools and bowling alleys and all kinds of things. And that seemed to be really promising until the neighboring houses started to shift because as you excavate the ground underneath them, the support that was the other foundations in the neighboring houses relied on was no longer there, even in the best of circumstances, when they tried to be as careful as possible. These other houses started to shift, and all of a sudden the doors would no longer open because the frames were starting to bend, windows started to break, cracks started to appear on houses that had been stable for Decades or even hundreds of years. And in some cases, some of those neighboring houses had to be abandoned because their foundation shifted so significantly that it became too dangerous to live in there. And that's what happens when a foundation no longer is able to support the weight of the building on it. And so as David is writing this psalm, he correctly identifies in verse 2 that God is really the only rock, the solid foundation that we can build our life on. So we don't have to worry about the house that we're building, whether the foundation will be able to hold it in the shifting sands of time or over the course of time. We don't need to worry about that. And I know, uh, children, many of you have uh, perhaps gone to the beach this summer, or maybe you're planned to go to the beach this summer, and one of the favorite activities for children on the beach is to build something on the sand. You take your bucket, you fill it with sand, you, you build a sandcastle, you build the ramparts, you build the, the, the corners of the, of the castle, and it's interesting, you can be very creative and in some cases you may have walked along the beach and seen some who are particularly artistic in building very fancy castles or other shapes as they express their artistic ability. But sadly those sand castles last but only a few hours especially if you build them closer to the water and then the waves come up and soon the wall collapses and one by one those things you carefully built collapses. Now, of course, if you didn't spend a lot of time building it, that's actually part of the fun to see how it can collapse and you try to build uh, uh, dikes or, 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 or uh, uh, things to take the water away to see if you can keep your sandcastle up longer. And it's enjoyable because there's really no lasting value in what was being built there. It's a time of spending time together and being in the outdoors and enjoying the good weather. But that's not how you, we can build our life. We have to build it on a solid foundation. If you look at some of the really, really important buildings, the building code only allows them to be built on bedrock there's very few of those buildings one of them being a nuclear power plant and we can understand why the foundation of a nuclear power plant is so important is that it must be built on a solid foundation that hasn't moved in thousands of years or as far as we can tell has never moved but from our observation clearly in the creation of the world there was a lot of movement that took place but anyway from a stability standpoint can be built on bedrock that will not move. And so, David has discovered that really the only true rock, the only true foundation, the bedrock to build on, is upon God and his truth and his word. Because that is the only thing that endures the test of time. If we build on other philosophies, We see them as they change from generation to generation. And often it only takes one or two generations for the philosophies that don't align with the Scripture to eventually crumble. And often it doesn't even take that long. It may only be several years before the philosophy of an approach to living life falls apart. And someone who is built on that foundation... Pays a heavy cost to start rebuilding their life on a different foundation. He says, God, He is my salvation. From Him cometh my salvation. Salvation is being saved from something, being rescued. So what is he writing about here? And this is, of course, Psalm the 62, 62nd chapter is not the only time where we read about salvation. This is a common theme throughout the entire scripture, expressed in so many different ways. What is he being saved from or why is salvation necessary? We have to go back to God's original design to better understand why this is so necessary. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we read how God created Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect harmony. In the last verse in Genesis chapter 3, it says, after God finished all the creation and they were in the garden, they were given the responsibilities that they had, it says that they were not ashamed. In other words, they had they were able to be fully vulnerable between themselves and their marriage relationships relationship, as well as fully vulnerable in their relationship with God. And in order to have intimacy, in order to have um, to experience the full benefit of a relationship, we need to be able to be vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, that results in intimacy. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We can be fully transparent. And that's the situation that they found themselves in. In the garden, fully transparent, one with another, full trust between each other as well as with God. And they walked with God on a daily basis. Physically, so the relationship was beautiful and perfect. Physically, everything was beautiful and perfect. They had responsibility that they could carry out. It's not that they were ever bored. God gave them work to do, and they carried that work out. But then we read <clears throat> that the enemy came and provided a specific kind of temptation. That there's got to be something More. Something better. That they're missing out in some way. And that's often, of course, how temptation starts. That we are missing out on something better. And as a child or the children that we have here with us, you've experienced that many times where your parents have established certain boundaries or rules. You have to ride your bike in this certain place. You can't just ride it in the street. You... um, can't just eat any snack you want before dinner. And these are all rules and guidelines that they have put in place for your benefit. But often you will feel like these rules are too restrictive or a bedtime, a certain time to go to bed and that you are missing out. And so you will look for ways in your creativity to skirt those rules. And you've probably experienced some of the consequences of not abiding by those rules. Because those rules are established by your parents because they love you. They care for you. Even though at the time it may not feel that way, they do have your best interest in mind. And so, of course, God, as our Father in Heaven, as the ultimate parent figure, ultimate authority figure has our best interest in mind. And so they were not missing out on anything, and yet Satan was able to plant that seed of doubt that there was something better. They didn't have to follow God's guidelines or rules. They could experience growth in a way that was pretty tantalizing, was pretty tempting, because what was they, what were they being tempted with? He said in verse 5 in Genesis chapter 3 that they will become like gods. Think about that. What would it be like to be like a God? To be like God himself? To have ultimate authority? To make up the rules yourself? To you decide what is good and right and wrong? To have full autonomy that nobody can tell you what to do? To have full control, wow, that is quite a temptation. And sadly, as we know, they fell for it. Expecting to be able to ascend, to be able to go up the wrong, as it were, to go up the ladder. And it was a big, fat lie. That's not at all what happened. And of course, that is always the case with the temptation. It makes a promise that it cannot keep. Not only can it not keep the promise, usually the consequence is when we have to pay the consequence, we're worse off than having given in to that temptation. And that's exactly what happened to them. Rather than ascending and becoming God to have full control, to have full autonomy, they actually descended they lost control. They lost control of their own selves. Because remember we were talking about they were not ashamed. They had full intimacy. And as soon as they did, they decided they wanted to become like God and disobeyed. They actually began to lose control of their own selves. We know that immediately following that the very next thing that the Bible records is that they began to hide They no longer were willing to be vulnerable because there was shame. There was guilt associated with it. They started closing up. They started to blame one another and bicker and quarrel. And instead of becoming the ultimate judge, because God himself is a judge, they became judgmental. Instead of gaining control, they became controlling. And this is the sin nature that every one of us has inherited. And mankind has been following that pattern ever since. Because so many of our problems come from trying to control things that are outside of our control. And when we try, we end up losing control of ourselves in the process. And children, you've experienced this. Think back through now the week, this past week, of any of the quarrels that you may have had with your siblings or maybe some of your friends. Most often... The disagreements that come are around who has control. Whether it's your toys, who who I'd like to play with this toy and somebody else comes along and wants control of that toy and wants to take it away, or control behavior of what your sibling should or should not do. And of course, that's not always agreeable. People do not like to be controlled because they want to be in control. And so that's what often is the source of most of the conflict in the home. But it doesn't just stop in the home. This source of conflict, of who is in control, is at the root of much of humanity's problems that we see today. On the micro scale within a family and the set of relationships on maybe a more global scale between governments and what what they're trying to impose what you can and cannot do or even in between governments and wars broke out wars break out because one wants to exert control over another that is unwelcome control this controlling behavior is something that we've inherited as part of our sin nature. And this is what we need to be saved, one of the things that we need to be saved from, this salvation. Because as we try, if we don't subject that aspect of our sinful nature the ability, to the desire to control someone else to God's control or his ultimate authority, we begin to be tempted to use underhanded methods to gain control. And we've all experienced this, either on the receiving end or sometimes even on the giving end. See, when the extreme forms of that control or some form of manipulation either promises of reward or promises of, of, of consequence or even bullying or bribing or guilting someone or maybe giving silent treatment in order to provide some sort of consequence to the person. And of course, as parents, God has delegated some of that control to us for our children. Now, there are some forms that I went through here that are completely inappropriate, to provide discipline to our children. But certainly consequences and rewards in the sense for 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 um, training a child is something that um, can often be effective. But at a certain age, it starts becoming less and less effective as they become adults. And eventually, we re- reach a limit of how much we can control them. And ultimately, they're responsible to God. And even though... If they rebel against our authority as they get older, at times we have to pull back and commit them to the Lord rather than giving in to some form of manipulation. Because the scripture says that we are to overcome evil or wrongdoing by doing good. In First Thessalonians five we read that. To not be over not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. In Romans, the sixteenth chapter, we read in <clears throat> verse seventeen, the apostle, as he's closing his long epistle to the Romans, he writes, "Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offences, contrary to the doctrine which doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them, for they are not for they are such." Excuse me. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. In other words, they're serving their own appetites, their own interest, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. This is a form of control that they're trying to exert with flattery of speech, good words and fair speeches to deceive others, to get their own way. It's just one example of how that control can be exerted. And these are just various forms, manifestations of our sinful nature that started way back in the first book of the Scripture at the beginning and that we have inherited. And this is what we need to be saved from. This desire to be in control, to be as God, to make up the rules rather than following God's rules himself. And it always starts with a lie. It doesn't look like a lie at, at, at the onset when it first is presented to us. It looks very convincing that we can be in charge. And what we decide is right and wrong is more important than what God has stated in his word is right and wrong. Why is that so exceedingly sinful? You see, I haven't even talked about other forms of sin that could result in murder and 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 adultery and uh the an entire list that the scripture gives often that we all would say, Well, I don't fit in that category, which hopefully is true. But my friend, if you have never given your given up control of your life to the Lord of life and have experienced that salvation, You don't have to commit all those heinous sins in order to be guilty before God. Because the ultimate sin in God's eyes is rebellion against his authority. That's ultimately what Adam and Eve did. They didn't commit murder in order to be expelled from the garden and sever their relationship with God. They didn't commit all those other heinous sins that we can read about in the scripture or that we've witnessed as we open the newspaper or have seen other people commit in their lives. They didn't have to commit that in order to sever their relationship with God because it started out with rebellion against his authority. In modern day terms, we call that treason. Treason is something where someone who is under a governing authority thinks that they want a different governing authority, and they will take underhanded methods, either sell intelligence to a foreign agency to uh, uh, allow them to be able to take control of that country, or themselves establish a or, 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 or initiate a coup to take over that foreign entity, often with violence. And if their treasonous activities are discovered before they're successful, in most countries of the world, that is a death sentence. In a sense, it's no different from God. That's why sin is so serious, because we're committing treason against the God of the universe. We're telling God... No thanks, we don't want your authority in our life. We are in control. We can handle this. And that is the ultimate rebellion against him, from which all other sin flows, because we want to do it our way. And my friend, I don't know your specific circumstance, But if I think back to my own and from the many testimonies that we have heard from people that have committed their life to the Lord, it came down to the issue of control. Am I willing to give up control, the throne of my heart? Am I willing to give that up to the King of kings and Lord of lords? That can be a scary proposition. Because when we're in control, we feel like we can Hold it together. It's kind of like, for those of you that have your license, many prefer to be in the driver's seat. They feel more comfortable to be in the driver's seat rather than in the passenger seat or in the back seat. And oftentimes when someone else is driving, we get nervous when they're doing something. They pull up too close to somebody else or, or the, the speed that they're going or, or in the way that they're driving. We become nervous because we are not in control. It's a little scary to give it up to somebody else. Especially when that other person who's driving is a little bit more aggressive than we are by nature. And so giving up control is scary. There is risk that is involved in doing that. But often when someone has tried to control their life... And in rather than expanding their sphere of control and being successful in their way, they begin to recognize things are getting out of control. That's how addictions happen in all forms. Is the person who ultimately falls into a severe level of addiction, never expected to get to that point, felt that they could always control it. And usually it's at the end of their rope where they realize I'm in a predicament. I can't handle this on my own. And finally, when they're willing to admit that and give up control of their life, that's when salvation can come. Because now they start building on the rock, on the foundation of God himself. So my friend, I challenge you to take inventory of your life. Are you building on the right foundation? Or are you afraid to give up control to the God who created you? He's the one that knows your every fiber and every being, every thought that goes through your mind. Who better to give up control and find that as you give up that control, you gain so much more than you could have ever imagined. But that treason that we've committed has to be paid for. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He paid that with his own life. Rather than us dying for our treasonous activities, he died for us. And not only died and paid for it, but was victorious over over all of that sin nature. And as a result, has earned the ability... To not only save us, but has demonstrated that he is the legitimate authority in our life. That he has earned that place as the captain of our salvation. To take the head, to take the reins of our life. Now the rest of the Psalms here talks about... What David experienced through that salvation. Once you experience salvation, you now become safe from various things. And let's read through those things in the verses that we have. Now, verse 3 and 4 is a little bit hard to understand in in the King James translation. So I'm going to read an alternate translation so it's easier to understand. He says, so many enemies against one one man, all of them trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They plan to topple me from my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me in their hearts. So he's experiencing an attack. He's being attacked by other people because as a king, he has many enemies and they're trying to topple him. They're trying to get rid of him, push him aside Now, of course, none of us have ever been in that position of authority. And I'm thankful that's not something I would personally want to aspire to. It's very difficult to have. The more authority you have, the more you have to give up of your own personal ambition if you want to carry out that authority in a proper way. You have to give up to go up, as the saying goes. So he, in his, as a king, is experiencing attacks from all sides what kind of attacks are we experiencing in our day and age certainly of course the enemy of our soul his entire goal is our demise and our demise is his delight he will delight in destroying and the, the Jesus even said that the thief in other words the robber the ultimate robber comes to but to, to destroy and to kill and so he will attack you and i In various different ways. I love the hymn writer in our hymnal in 325. We read in the, the second verse that we've often sung together. When Satan would seek me and fearful I'd be, and rightly so, then glows like a star this true word. My Jesus has all things perfected for me. I am pure through the blood of the Lord. Though we are being attacked... We do not need to be overwhelmed if we have built our foundation on the word. If we are a child of the king because he has promised that he will never allow a temptation that is greater than we can bear. We can be overcomers when we are attacked in that way. But sometimes the attack isn't just a attack on the mind and in our thoughts and the various forms. Sometimes it comes through circumstances or people. Sometimes we are bullied. Sometimes we are taken advantage of. Sometimes people say things that are hurtful to us. Sometimes we are the subject of some gossip that's going around. And all of those things are hurtful. And the enemy wants to use that. To attack us, to bring us down, to cause discouragement, to have us throw in the towel, to say it's not worth proceeding, to give up. And that would be giving in to the temptation rather than standing on the solid foundation and saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and claiming the promises of the scripture that are powerful and positive and practical to ward off the attacks that we will face until the day we die and so we can be safe from attacks you see the i think the apostle paul wrote it uh, very well as he as he summarized it Near the end of his life, we read in Second Timothy, uh, the fourth chapter in verse 17. So here the Apostle Paul's in prison. He's facing a trial, the trial of his life. And here he has the first, uh, his first appearing before the judge. It says, at my first answer, that is his first defense in front of the judge, who's going to judge who is is whether he's going to live or die. And some believe this was the, uh, the the equivalent Caesar at the time. It says, At, at my first answer, no man stood with, with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. So when he's under attack, there was nobody there to support him. Notwithstanding, actually there was somebody that was supporting him. It says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Think of that. That word picture. Being delivered out of the mouth of the lion. As he is... Uh, that's the last moment that you can be delivered before you are devoured. You see, if you're running away from something that's chasing you, you still have some margin of, of safety. But when you are in the mouth of the, of, of the lion... You are but one nanosecond away from death and being consumed. And so this is how he found himself. He was in the mouth of the lion at the last moment he was delivered. And then he says in verse 18, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Which is true, not only for the Apostle Paul, but also true for us. That we can be safe from attack, even though at times it feels like we are even in the mouth of the lion. Where it seems that there's no way out or no way to escape. But we can cry out to the Lord who it says will stand by us. And so we can be safe from attack. We read in verse 8 in Psalm 62. Where he says, trust in him, this is him trusting in God, at all times, ye people, pour out your heart before God, before him rather, God is a refuge for us. It means that we can be safe to be vulnerable. See, trust is built on vulnerability. We we learn to trust someone over the course of experiences. As we make experiences, we realize that somebody we trust, we can be vulnerable. We can share our innermost thoughts and feelings and fears without feeling like we're going to be judged, without feeling like um, they're going to see less of us. And the scripture says David discovered that The Lord is trustworthy that we can bring our deepest fears and insecurities to him and we can be fully transparent with him. Why is that? Because the scripture, the writer in Hebrews says that he is our high priest and he also was touched With the feelings of our infirmities being as a man and experience what temptations are like, experience what being attacked was like, experience what being discouraged was like. And so he can empathize, not just sympathize, but empathize. He understands what those feelings are like, which allows us to be vulnerable with him and so we can come boldly, as the scripture says, before the throne of grace and express our innermost fears and insecurities and desires and allow him to lead and guide us out of those things and rescue us to provide salvation from those things. And then the verse uh, 9 Talks about, surely men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie. And to be laid in the balance, they're altogether lighter in vanity. In other words, we're safe from deceit. There is a falsehood or a, or a lie that says, hey, if I'm common, if I'm just an ordinary person, I'm not going to amount to anything. But he says, even if you take all of the common people, the average person, and you put them in the balance, if you weigh them, With all those men and women that are highly accomplished, that have their, that have received a Nobel Prize, that have made their billions of dollars, you put them all together and you weigh them, it's, he says, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Vanity is just a thing that just poof, it vanishes away. It's a deceitful thing to think that, uh, We, if we rise in importance and somehow that's going to solve our set of insecurities. He goes, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. In other words, all of these things, oppression is a form of control. If we try to control other people, somehow we'll feel better about it. Or if we uh, covet and think, and, and, and in a sense, like rob somebody of something that they have that we're looking at and, wow, if only I had that, that would make my life fantastic. All of these things is deceitful. It's not going to work, which is why the scripture says we should not be coveting. We should be satisfied with the things that God has given to us because we will find that if we try to chase after those other things, they will not satisfy And they are deceitful. Ultimate power belongs to God himself. And so when we give up control of our lives. And we give it to the God of the universe. And build our life on that bedrock. We will find that we are safe from attack. Safe when popular opinion turns against us. Because doesn't matter what other people think. We really have to answer to God. And certainly, of course, we want to uh, provide a good witness and do the best we can. But at times we see in our culture that people's reputation can dissolve in a matter of minutes with various tweets or posts on blogs that then has the popular opinion turn against them. But we can be safe from those kinds of attacks. We can be safe to be vulnerable. And we can be safe from being deceived on what ultimately matters. Because we have the word of God, which has endured the test of time, which we can safely build our life upon. And that is true, my friend, for you. It's true for those of us that have been, been believers, whether a short time or a long time that this sin nature is something that we continually have to fight against and subject to the power of the Word of God to be able to experience the blessing that David experienced as he wrote, Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense I shall not be greatly moved. Amen.